Hello, and welcome back to the Mindful Sport Performance Podcast. I'm Dr. Keith Kaufman. I'm Dr. Tim Pinot. Uh, and we are very happy to be joined today by Dr. John Kabat-Zinn, um, who has joined us before on the podcast and was gracious enough to agree to come back and talk about you know, a really big topic that's affected us and affected our podcast. And, and so um, we're really appreciative of your time today, John. Thank you so much for, for coming back. Mm, it's good to be back with you both. Um, very briefly, just to introduce John, if, if you're not familiar with his work, uh, John Kabat-Zinn, Dr. John Kabat-Zinn, is internationally known for his work as a scientist, writer, and meditation teacher engaged in bringing mindfulness into the mainstream of medicine and society. He's a professor of medicine emeritus at the University of Massachusetts Medical School, where he founded its world-renowned mindfulness-based stress reduction clinic and the Center for Mindfulness in Medicine, Healthcare, and Society. He's the author of numerous books and other publications, including two bestsellers, Full Catastrophe Living and Wherever You Go, There You Are. His books and guided meditation programs describe meditation practice in such common sense, relevant, and compelling terms that mindfulness meditation practice has become a way of life for thousands of people. His work has contributed to a growing movement of mindfulness into mainstream institutions in our society, such as medicine, healthcare, schools, education, corporations, prisons, the legal profession, and professional sports. Um, so again, wonderful bio. Uh, we're, we're just so grateful for, for you coming on today. Um, and we're also grateful you, you had agreed to just start us off with a very brief practice to get us into the headspace for today. Well, <clears throat> let's uh, keep in mind that uh, our motivation for uh, dropping in on the present moment uh, is always uh, important. Uh, and to make sure that we're not doing it from any kind of mechanical or, or you know, perspective of gaining something, getting something out of something, but more just uh, giving ourselves over to the actuality of uh, really the miracle of the breath moving in and out of the body and the fact that we actually are in this moment alive and sentient, no matter what our circumstances. So when we take our seat metaphorically and literally, if you're sitting, uh, we have the opportunity to not try to be anywhere else or get some special experience or shift how we are in relationship to anything, but to simply drop in to pure awareness. And if that sounds too abstract, then to at least focus on the body as a kind of locus of the mystery of human awareness. And then taking up residency in that awareness, grounded in the body, grounded in the sensations of breath moving in and out, and simply being at home. So we're not trying to have a special kind of experience, but rather we're <clears throat> uh, affirming and recognizing that having any experience whatsoever is insanely special, miraculous, really. 
and the only avenue we have for knowing and inhabiting experience is our awareness, human awareness. Maybe not so fair to call it ours, but it's a profound characteristic of our humanity and one that is really helpful to learn how to visit on occasion at least, if not inhabit, kind of as our go-to to default mode, so to speak, where we're always at home. independent of whatever is going on. And so seeing if any of the words that I've used to uh, issue this, offer this invitation, resonate with you in a way that's beyond the words and underneath the words and and allowing you to simply drop into the boundless spaciousness of being alive and awake in this moment with no agenda whatsoever. Now, this is, in some sense, the uh, adventure of uh, the present moment and simultaneously the adventure of a lifetime, which consists only of present moments, most of which we miss but don't have to. And so... Uh, before we transition to our dialogue and conversation for the day. Seeing if you can actually just open to the possibility that the real meditation practice is life itself. It's not just when I say, okay, now this guided meditation is over. That's in some sense, nothing is over, nothing ever started. As long as you're breathing, there's a continuity of life unfolding and of mind moments, so to speak. And so as we open our eyes, if our eyes have been closed or gaze at the screen or whatever it is that's in, in front of you, um, realizing that this entire program will be the meditation, that in fact, your entire life is the meditation practice, the way I'm certainly talking about it and understand it. Uh, and... And that, I think, will give us a kind of framework for recognizing that when we use the term mindfulness, 
in all Asian languages, from what I'm told, the word for mind and the word for heart are the same words. So uh, keep in mind uh, that uh, when you hear the word mindfulness, if you're not feeling or hearing the word heartfulness, you're not really understanding the warmth and the kindness and the compassion that's actually uh, not separate from the attending, not separate from awareness itself. That it's not like there's awareness and then there's compassion and, or self-compassion or kindness. Uh, and you have to work at both. There, there's no separation. They're one integral whole. Uh, and beyond the words mind and the words heart. And for that matter, the word mindfulness or any other concepts that we might bring to it. So this really, this conversation and in fact, the entire podcast, really, when it comes to mindfulness in sports or mindfulness in anything else, is at least the way I see it, really about the beauty and the mystery of life itself and what's possible when we show up for it in our essential fullness, which is, as I was suggesting, um, ultimately wakefulness itself, fully embodied if it's possible to remember about embodiment in in these moments and that's where the practice comes in thank you thank you john for that um, yeah, it was, I was feeling really nervous coming into this today, very much living in the future. I mean, today we're going to talk about grief. I don't think we've said that explicitly yet. Uh, you know, Keith and I recorded an episode last April, um, about two months after my daughter and I had died. Today, we're recording on December 6th. 2022 it's almost 10 months um so i i wanted to return to this i wanted to share more about my experience because it it's been very helpful to me to do that and part of that is because i believe it's helpful to other people um but yeah approaching today i was just like so i don't know i was i was feeling more nervous um and i think sitting listening to you john and and just the invitation to be back in the present moment. I was like, I've been so nervous about being here right now in this moment. And now that I'm here, I'm like, oh, I'm John Kevin Zinn is leading a meditation on a podcast that I created with these, with this group of people that I, that I love and who've seen me grow up since I started graduate school at 23 years old. Like, you know, few people have that perspective on me. Just like, I was so nervous about this moment, but there's something that's so cool about it. Uh, <laughs> but I did want to share a little bit more, you know, about, about what it's been like, um, because I don't think that at least uh, <clears throat> I, it has not been my experience. I feel like I've heard a lot of stories like, like raw in the immediate resonant stories about, 
grief, um, with actually a recent exception of uh, this comedian, Rob Delaney, who lost his son. Um, he wrote a book about it. And it's the first thing I've read that wasn't a mindfulness book, honestly. It was the first book about grief that didn't talk about, that wasn't from the Buddhist perspective that like really resonated with me because he was just so honest. So like raw. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I guess I, I wanted to share some of that. What feels raw to me, you know, what it's been like over these last 10 months. Um, and it, when it first happened, I feel like it broke me open. Um, and in the immediate aftermath, certainly around the time when we recorded that first episode, it felt like some of my, the previous hangups I had, uh, things I worried about, it, it, it's the word that comes to mind is incinerated. It's like they just got incinerated by the grief. It's like they were gone. I remember having this conversation in a, in a supervision group where uh, one of my colleagues was talking about this, you know, she was about to start a new uh, therapy group and she had kind of committed to a to another colleague that they were going to start on a specific day, but she didn't feel like it was going to work for her, but she felt all this pressure. And I, all these very seemingly legitimate concerns, right? And I remember responding to her like, oh, I remember being worried about that kind of stuff. And I just, those worries aren't present for me anymore. But over the past eight months, I've like they've all crept back in. It's like I've watched my, it's like, it's like the armor got like just knocked off of me. And totally unintentionally, I have been slowly piece by piece putting it all back on. It's been such an interesting thing to watch. I mean, is, is that true? Can I just stop you and ask whether what you just said is actually true that piece by piece you've been putting the armor back on? To some extent, I mean, certainly not in exactly the same way that I was wearing it before. Um, there seems, I, I feel like I have a different vantage point on it now, but it's been so, so curious, so interesting to watch myself engage in avoidance, you know, um, or to like, yeah, like to, respond to anxiety in these ways that are like I judge is not not particularly mindful about it. it's like I just want to be kind of like numb or like make it go away and that's not every moment you know but um defensiveness my sensitivity to other people's perceptions of me it really feels like that was erased I just and maybe it was <laughs> I was too full of grief to care I don't know but it was just like it didn't matter and now I find it really mattering again i'm aware of it in a different way but it's, it's been just so interesting to watch all this stuff come back into the picture even now i mean like i i i feel so self-conscious sometimes about even talking about my grief talking about anaya for fear that someone will judge i'm doing it for attention and that fear comes from an awareness that I, I am in part doing it for attention. I just am like, it feels good when people say like, oh, wow, that's so brave. Or like, 
that helps me so much, or I can't believe how vulnerable you are. I can't, you know, like all of those positive judgments. I, I, I absolutely want them. I'm fearful that people will judge this episode right now that I've used my daughter's death to convince John Kabat-Zinn to come on our podcast, which is, I feel like an incredibly cynical take. And yet it wasn't lost on me, John, when I emailed you, like, this is going to be hard to say no to from a human perspective. Um, It's interesting. And I'm really glad we're having this conversation because, um, Uh, the question I asked you, you, you know, um, about the, the the nature of the truth of all of the statements and the narratives that we're talking about, they, they can all be true in a certain way, but in another way, we know that they're not. So you can also confabulate, and I understand why that might be the case, but like making a big deal of inviting me back on the podcast to talk about this in a certain way makes me into a caricature mm-hmm. uh, because then it's like John Kabat-Zinn the way you said it as just a, a, a person who you know uh, has a life is mortal and just like everybody else and you know where we can connect in a way that perhaps is outside of those conventional narratives even about status or mindfulness teacher or grief for that matter and drill down to something where yes all of those relativistic things are happening in the thought world and in the emotional domain but the reason i said yes to this in a certain way is because of the bravery i felt from you uh listening to the original mm. podcast b- between the two of you uh where uh there's another dimension to this that you know is purely human it's in some sense even larger than your own individual circumstances because we're embedded in the humanity that's been experiencing grief and loss and tragedy forever and we're and you don't you could pick up the newspaper or watch anything on television and you know it's like in our faces in ways that are virtually unavoidable and that we numb ourselves to in a certain way because we couldn't take in the level of suffering that's out there every single day and and so uh, that was where my asking you about the sort of the the nature of the accuracy of it whether that that whole narrative that you're speaking about true as it is is not the only truth of your experience and what i'm asking about is whether there's and it may be that it isn't or it's not yet or something like that but in terms of bringing the practice to an experience that no human being should ever have or you know, and that it happens. Where, where, what is the value of the practice under these kinds of circumstances? And how do we differentiate even the best narratives about our grief from the totality of how we are in relationship to it over time and how intimate we can get with 
aspects that we mostly just want to wall off from and numb ourselves out to. Yeah. Yeah. And this is the practice. I mean, it's not like I'm just like, you know, sort of, this is what the practice actually is. And it's, it's a, it's a lifetime's arc. So it's like your life will never actually, every moment is a branch point. So what happened in the loss of Inaya and everything, all of this, there's elements of it, uh, the joys and the unimaginable, you know, horrors. Um, it shapes the moments that follow for a lifetime. And it's a unique experience, you know, in, in your case and with you and your wife. Uh, but it's, it's certainly also part of the human experience, both in the ways you've experienced it and in warfare that's going on in many ways on the planet right in this moment. And death and destruction of innocence for no reason. And, and, and so this is where the rubber meets the road of, of the practice with no attachment, as I was trying to suggest in the guidance of the meditation practice, to any outcome whatsoever or any thought that I'm, I'm even handling this <laughs> well or mindfully or i should i should be this way and i shouldn't be that way uh which is just thinking mm -hmm. do you know what i'm saying and it's not like to put it down thinking is wonderful and our emotions are also wonderful but but there's also the question of like why why do you have a mindfulness podcast i mean what is what it's it's like why mindfulness and that's in my view it's because it, it gives us all of us the capacity to tap into a, another dimension of human intelligence really that is absolutely necessary for understanding all of the ways that we you know are our own worst enemy perhaps uh and also for reconciling ourselves to and coming to terms with the unimaginable suffering in a way that is truly honoring of what's been experienced, what's been lost, and also the potential for going on in a way that is uh, the measure of who you are in your own being and who you were before all this happened. Mm. I don't know if any of that makes sense to you, but I wanted to, before we got too far <laughs> into it, to at least um, sort of call you on certain aspects of this the 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 story just to make sure that there is the awareness of the story going on on a parallel track and and yeah i'm so glad you're pointing that out because honestly that's the piece that feels so different like i'm i recognize these old i mean i call them pieces of armor or whatever i i, I recognize these these traits these habits these longings these needs some of them I've judged for a long time or tried to work on or, you know, and now I, I see them all coming back and I have so much more compassion for them. Like, uh, okay. I, but that's, that's really different. You're not just putting on the armor again. Yeah. Well, that's I, really different. I think knowing all, like all the thoughts I just shared, all the worries that people, how we, people would perceive me. I know that, or I think I know that prior to all this, I never would have said that out loud. 
certainly not on a podcast, you know, but just to be able to say, like, this is what I'm feeling, this is what I'm scared of because this is what I'm aware of is inside of me. Like, um, yeah, that it does feel like I, I can, I see it as a story now. It certainly feels like it has less power over me. I still judge it sometimes. Well, who's the you though that's that's seeing it and judging it? That's really, and you know, this is in the air in a way that I don't know if it was in the air in earlier decades, but you know, I mean, Anderson Cooper has a podcast now yeah. that's like extremely popular where he's, you know, been talking about his own loss and his own family and the grief of it, and then interviewing other people who have experienced, you know, the kind of grief that we're talking about. And then Stephen Colbert was one of them. And, you know, this is kind of like, I don't know why it's happening at this particular moment, but it's in the zeitgeist. Uh, and your contribution to it is like super beautiful and important, in part because you know, you're not some, you know, uh, world famous person. You're just you. And even the world famous people are not world famous people. That's all projection of other people and stuff like that. Uh, But they're just human beings too. And when they share their grief in that kind of a very public way, in a certain way, it gives other people permission to kind of realize, oh, I'm projecting all this stuff onto Stephen Colbert or Anderson Cooper, but, you know, the losses that they experienced and their willingness to talk about it. And Co- Anderson Cooper said you know, recently that uh, we did a thing together in New York City a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, he said this, and I think he said it on his podcast. All of this sh- has shaped my life. Unbelievable horror has made him in part who he is and, you know, in his family and how he had to, you know, and, and it was always like, well, why did this have to happen? It could have been, you know, I would have had such a wonderful life. And then realizing I do have a wonderful life. And it was shaped by the actuality of, you know, what I call the full catastrophe of the human condition, which is the good, the bad, and the, the unimaginably horrific. Yeah. So I, I want to just express my uh, admiration to you for your willingness to, you know, just put the welcome that out for all of this and go wherever, let it take you wherever it takes you and and be with it. And then use the whole thing as practice, which means nothing has to be edited or different or sanitized for public consumption, but simply held in awareness in the unfolding and the awareness has something to do with transforming grief into something that's part of grief but more than grief i don't know how to i mean there are no words for this kind of thing we're out beyond words in a certain way but has everything to do with the beauty of the human condition in the face of the human condition at its you know darkest moments i mean it's it's remarkable just to watch this exchange between the two of you and and i'm trying to think like how can i contribute anything constructive to this whatsoever (laughs) to be honest but as as i'm listening i mean i i know i said this i think in our first recording tim and this this was i think how you've been since the beginning and i think it's just evolved from here 
your willingness to be authentic. You know, that's the word that just keeps reverberating through my mind is, is authentic. Um, you, you seem like something that's really hard for you is, is the artificiality with which we so often treat others who are going through things like this or, or try to kind of force these narratives on ourselves. And I, I, I think from the beginning, you've really struggled with how can I go through this authentically? How can I be authentic with myself? How can I go, how can I be authentic with others? And, and that's evolved. That's looked different at different phases of this process for you. Um, but I, I really share a lot of what John was saying, um, you know, in terms of the implications of that. And I think the courage that you've shown throughout this whole process. And I, I feel very blessed. I get to work with you in a lot of different capacities. Um, you know, we're, we're partners in so many ways. And, and I've seen how this has evolved in you across domains of your life mm -hmm. and how you've been able to, to help people and, and still be, I think, as true to yourself as you can be, even though it's been a struggle at times. And I have less of a window into this, but from what I've gathered, just the kind of father that you've been to your son um, and the kind of husband that you've been to your wife during this time, this could have gone a lot of different ways in your family. And it seems like the way that you've chosen to handle this is pretty remarkable. Um, so like I said, I, I think I have less window. I don't mean to speak out of turn because I, I see you much more in a professional capacity, but I think my sense is that what you've been able to do with Ishan, with, with your son is, is pretty, pretty heroic. Yeah, thank you. Right, thank you both. Um, but of course it, yeah, it feels very good to, to hear that, but it also, but it, but it feels true, you know, like, um, to put some words to like what what comes out of this that is more than grief. I mean, for me, it's it's been so much gratitude, like, and just like I mean, in in the face of this crushing loss, I can't help but see how much I have, and that it doesn't minimize the the pain or, or take any of that away. But it's just that perspective is available to me in a way that. Uh, it wasn't before. I don't know. It's making me think of this experience I had just a few days ago. You know, my wife and I have, we've had conversations about would we want to try to have another child? Uh, and the other night I was, we had, had a, we had talked about it and it just it felt very, like a very serious conversation, you know? And um, I was trying to, I was like laying in bed and I was, I got overwhelmed by anxiety, just thinking about like how scary it would be to be pregnant again and, and all the, all the things that could go wrong. And, um, and, and it, it, it started in a very similar kind of way of like, Oh no, now I'm going to be really anxious and I'm not gonna be able to fall asleep. And then I'm going to, so now I got to like kind of try to calm myself down so that I can sleep so I can like be whatever, like, okay, tomorrow. Um, but I, I, I kind of caught it and I was like, well, wait a second. Like, I'm just going to be with this anxiety and just like watch it. I wanted to be authentic with myself, you know? And it, I mean, for 
for a period of time, it was like even more intense, but like, not surprisingly, it just like started to evaporate. And not, not, I wasn't like pushing anything away. It just like, what I found, I started landing on this worry of like, well, and then if we have another child, then it won't just be me and my wife and Nithya, or excuse me, my Nithya, Nithya is my wife, me and my wife, Nithya and our son, Ishan. It won't just be the three of us. Like, oh, and we'll have really lost something. And this thought occurred to me like, well, wait a second. To have fair warning before a loss, I would have so much time to savor like the three of us. And then, and then it, it kept evolving of like, why am I even thinking about the future right now? I'm lying in bed next to my wife. My son is down the hall. We are happy. We are healthy. That's just what's true right now. And yeah, and the anxiety was just gone. It's so important for anybody who's listening to this. The, the anxiety was gone, but nobody pushed it away. Nobody right. made it disappear. And this, this is the kind of the nature of anxiety is that it's relational. It has to do with the stream of thought and emotion that's moving through the mind. And really the only leverage we have, although from the meditative perspective, it really needs to be talked about as a non-doing. So we're not leveraging anything, but when it spontaneously happens like that, you realize you have a whole other dimension that you can recruit to and draw from that actually, um, transforms the suffering without um, in any way, shape, or form diminishing the any element of it, the loss, the grief, the pain, the regret, the narratives, or anything else, but that it transforms in, in a certain way that it that it the suffering evaporates and what's present in that moment, as I understand what you're saying, is a certain kind of uh, profound acceptance of the actuality of things, which is is equanimity. That's wisdom. It's not repression or, you know, sort of uh, rejection, and it's not dissociation or distancing or anything like that. And it's, I think, the reason I interrupted you is I think it's important to point these things out because we can so easily gloss over them to generate even a positive narrative about meditation practice. And there's a certain way in which the positive narratives about meditation practice are as toxic as the negative narratives about it because ultimately it's all thinking. And we're talking about something that's orthogonal to thinking that never gets enough pointing out instructions, so to speak, in kindergarten or you know graduate school or wherever about this uh, other form of uh, intelligence, which is, you know, in certain way, uh, you know, they, people use this word a lot, but I've actually started using it in this regard. It's a kind of superpower. It's something that we can pull on, call on to not attenuate anything, but to actually hold it in, in a way that's that's healing and ultimately transformative. Yeah. Well, and it doesn't mean that the grief won't last your entire lifetime. It, it will. Yeah. The loss you know, is unredeemable. And so it will always be here in a certain way. I won't say there. It will always be here. 
and how you are in relationship to it will make all the difference in the sort of the multidimensional elements of this that are also uh, honoring of who Inaya was for the short period that she was with. Yeah. If if you don't mind my saying that, because I don't think it's really mine to. No. Well, anything about that. But that feels very accurate. I mean it. Yeah, every anytime I I notice myself being more kind of patient, not just tolerant, but like truly patient with my son or myself, you know, more compassionate, more generous, it, it all feels connected to her. You know, and that's part of the gratitude of like she taught me something. It's a really important thing. Like I that I see now with a clarity that I never had before. I mean, it's like some of the things, I mean, I've been practicing mindfulness for a long time and it was like some of the things that I had read about, taught about, uh, I, I saw were like, oh, I was, that was an intellectual understanding and this like shifted into an experiential understanding. And like, to your point about like how much suffering there is in the world, you know, I feel so much more attuned to that now. I, my my wife's grandmother lost three children. You know, like this this kind of pain is all around us. Um, and and it's yeah, and it's not in that way of like, oh, other people have it worse, so I shouldn't be so upset or what. It's just this acknowledgement of our shared human experience. I was even talking to someone a couple months ago, but like they had um, over the course of the pandemic, they had adopted a puppy. And then it wasn't a good fit for their home and you know a lot of complicated reasons but they needed ended up needed to give it back and it wasn't until a couple of months later they shared it with me and i was like oh why wouldn't why didn't you share that with me you know like i that would have been really helpful to me to know that you were experiencing that loss too and like they were like i never would have compared the two like that you know which makes sense to me um but i was just coming from this other perspective of like no, you know something about my suffering. It's not exactly the same, but like it's, we're all, we all experience. Although it's beautiful that you framed it that way, because if they had said something about like, you know, I mean, people can be incredibly insensitive yes. and, and, and it's almost like, no, you don't, you don't compare a puppy to the loss of, of, of an infant child. I mean, no matter how much grief there is, not wise. If you want to do it, you being right. the person that, then that's a that's a different story because you can recognize to some degree a similarity of loss, but it's it's um, it's in a different category yes. altogether. So so that's something where we all need to be mindful of it because you know we've all had the experience of people trying to make us feel better mm -hmm. when they know we are experiencing grief, and they want to just now now you know, it's already been six months or whatever it is that they say out of their own nervousness or discomfort. It's like, no, this is going to affect me for the rest of my life. And, and, the, the, and, and it's just the way it is. And the real challenge is how am I going to be in wise relationship to him? And most of us are completely incompetent to be able to open our mouths around the grief and loss of another person. Yeah. Uh, but we don't need to open our mouths. We can be here for the other in a way that no words are ever exchanged, but the person actually feels it or knows it. And, and I think that's a whole other 
level of meditation practice actually to sort of um, learn to reside in the kind of honoring of the infinitude of someone else's suffering that you will never be able to really touch but where the empathic resonances let's call it i don't want to use the word compassion too facilely uh but uh the empathic re resonances really um deepen the love of whatever is underneath the relationship to the degree that friendship is really a, an expression of certain kind of love or relationality that's valued and yeah, that has been a huge part of my experience these last 10 months. I think there have been people who can be with the grief and I've experienced a lot of people who can't. Um, yeah, well, you find out who your friends are in a certain way because, you know, there's a sort of conventional way in which as long as the, I don't know what to call it, as long as the kind of play of shadows looks like it's going along just fine we can all be friendly and pretend that we're all like in the same reality but actually we're all in, in different realities and you know you find out who doesn't want to be in your reality when it goes you know in the direction that's like totally you know unthinkable and horrifying and terrifying and then it's like and this is where the awareness can transcend the narratives where in yourself, in your, your friends or other people that, you know, they love you for who you are. It doesn't matter how you are. And so, you know, that, that's, that's love. And, you know, and it's, and it's time independent. It's like only, you know, timeless. So in that sense, you know, some people live for a few months, some people live for a few years, some people live for decades. And and the grief of the loss of like it being that way is un, unimaginable. And it's always been that way. And, and there's something about that that I find incredibly humanizing. But until it happens to you, you don't get the full dose of how hard it is to be human. Yeah. Yeah. And then maybe the privilege, you know, as some people are observing nowadays in public more and more with how it actually shapes who you are, that there's a certain way in which you can't reject it as kind of like if only that hadn't happened, I would have a good life, that this is my life. And that's been a hugely important shaping factor, whether it happens to you in childhood, adulthood, or anywhere. And this is something that I, one of the reasons I said yes to coming back on the podcast is that we need to have more conversations like this in total candor and total honesty and a complete lack of, you know, pretense or artifice or dissimulation and just like kind of a certain kind of nakedness of like this is how it is but the knowing of it uh is in some sense a, a liberating or healing element 
I wonder, because I'm trying to think of a good way to articulate this question, because I think it, it, it feels to me like it's so related to what, what you're both saying. I, one of the questions that we get all the time in the trainings that we do in the different workshops, and, and actually, John, the first time I ever met you, the first time I ever saw you present, I remember specifically, this was a question you got asked from a member of the audience. I imagine it must come up for you all the time, is, you know, won't I get overwhelmed? if I approach something mindfully, right? I know that's kind of a broad umbrella kind of idea, but, but this idea, like what it sounds like we're saying is the vulnerability that's involved in this way of being, the vulnerability in how Tim is approaching this is really important. It's really important for the world. It's also really important for him yeah. and, and him being able to healthily navigate it. And, you know, Tim, your story that you reflected a few moments ago about, about the anxiety of, of possibly getting pregnant again and what that would be like and, and how ultimately you being able to sit with it and, and let it be also allowed you to let it go in, in some ways. And, you know, just thinking about how different that is than the default and, and you guys are talking about you know, finding out who your friends are and how uncomfortable I think so many facets of our society are with this level of emotion and this level of grief. I just wonder like what either of you or both of you would say to people who have this concern, like, but, but if I let it in, if I'm authentic, if I'm vulnerable, if I'm present, won't that swallow me up? I need these defenses. I love that you're asking this. If you don't mind, Tim, if I could respond uh, with the energy that that kind of was uh, called forth by by your naming it in that way, um, is like the key issue here, hard as it is to sometimes wrap one's, I'll say, heart around rather than mind, are the personal pronouns. Who who is that me? Who who am I? In my suffering, and. The, it's not to be facile or cute about this, but uh, to actually recognize that our stories about who we are and where we're going and what the future, the best optimal future will look like when we create those kind of narratives. And then we have a, a rude awakening of any kind. Uh, that's not external to reality. That's actually a greater reality than the narratives that we we tell ourselves and when we recognize that we know that those are the narratives then we actually don't know who's generating the narratives but then we don't even know who's aware and this rather than being a problem is actually uh, liberative it's freeing because it at least gives us an opportunity to say well who's aware where does this capacity to simply hold it all without judging any of it or generating a preferred narrative that's never going to be big enough to hold the whole and never going to be healing enough even if every other word you use is healing but that's instantly in some sense provides a different vantage point for holding the actuality of this without having to put any of it into words uh, and we taste it often for like fleeting moments, but those tastes, if you cultivate 
access to awareness in that way. That's what meditation practice really is. That's what mindfulness practice is. And then you discover there's a whole hidden dimension of reality that's underneath uh, or larger than those personal pronouns that generate the narrative of my grief or my lost future or the, you know, how I will reclaim my sanity or any of that kind of stuff. I mean, maybe this is actually the door to sanity rather than escape or, uh, you know, launch a loss of sanity. Maybe this is the real sanity. Uh, and I'm not saying that that's easy and, and or that, you know, this should all be recruited at the moment of maximal grief. Of course not. It's a process that goes on and shapes us for the rest of our lives and wanted or unwanted and nobody as i was saying ever wants it but uh and and many people never experience it they just have lives that like you know just never experience that kind of loss or grief and you know uh but again it it, it shapes us and being human you know if it's not one thing it's another thing that's going to be shaping us and and then it's always for now, but 10 years from now or 20 years from now, the awareness will be the same, but everything else will be older, <laughs> maybe wiser. But that depends on how we stand in this moment in the midst of it all. And that's an ongoing practice. So there's no idealized, oh, if only I stood in it the way I read in this book or the way the Buddha said or anything like that. No, it's like it's like ownership is essential. And uh, everybody, in some sense, reality is writing the script for every single one of us entirely differently. And yet we have a shared, you know, humanity, and which includes tremendous loss and grief. So I'm sorry to just sort of jump in, you know, right after what you said, but I sort of feel like um, it's it's really, um, I think, important to remind ourselves that life is never finished with us until at least our last breath. And if we wonder what the real curriculum is, then maybe we'll have a chance to show up in our fullness and be shaped by everything the good the bad and the ugly the wanted the unwanted the horrific the unimaginable and and maybe that's the curriculum for all of humanity on this planet at the moment because we're creating nightmare scenarios of all kinds uh and you know that's the human mind when it doesn't know itself when you can take what happens in your life and and mine it in a certain way or benefit from the gift that you've been given, the gifts, the unwanted, un, totally unwanted gifts that, you know, life hands us sometimes that we don't want to recognize this in any way like that. Uh, maybe that's what you know, we ultimately all of us need to learn in order to minimize suffering in the world, the kind that we create create for ourselves and other people. Because when something like what you experienced, Tim, happens, I mean, there's, there's, 
there's no human agency that's responsible for that. You know, it just like happened like a, a volcano. It's 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 like that kind of suffering is just we have to learn to do with it. And the, the Buddhist traditions distinguishes between that kind of suffering, what they call adventitious suffering, which is the kind of stuff that we do have some kind of say in. You know, we create a lot of suffering for ourselves or for each other. And that's where, you know, if we just were able to internally write a little bit of a restraining order, catch ourselves in the moment when it's like seeding a moment of violence or a moment of disrespect or disregard or whatever, then we would be liberating the world, not just ourselves from that. And then there's the stuff that like a volcano going off or a, or a tsunami, you know, whether it's like metaphorical or literal tsunami and and one of the things that I thought, going back to the Greek drama, the Greek chorus, it's all about grief and, and letting it out like nobody's business, the wailing and the rending and pulling of hair and everything else like this. Like, this is the kind of giving voice to the uh, that way in which humanity is not in control of some of those larger forces. Yeah, that lack of control is hard to grapple with. I've just been reading this really great book, Already Free, by this guy, Bruce Tift. And he, Already Free, is it called? Yeah, Already Free. Good title. Uh, yeah, it's great. Yeah, great title. But uh, one of the things that the there's in there that really struck out to me is just like that from the ego's perspective, anxiety is a very appropriate response to the idea of selflessness and groundlessness. Right, to face like that reality like you were talking right, about. Right, because it's curtains for the ego. <laughs> of course, the that capital S self feels overwhelmed by that, by that idea. And it's like, I, I do feel like this experience of grief, like really shifted from an intellectual to experiential. This like it forces a realization of, of that, that interconnectedness and, and, and yeah, like right, right, really seeing and honoring the, the ups and the downs, the good and the bad, the joys and the suffering in all of our experiences. I feel so much more connected to people now. And I mean, there are certainly moments where I feel really alone in my grief and like where I don't want to like interact interpersonally with anyone. And yet at the same time, just as a human existing in the world, I feel so much more plugged in. Um, and I think, I mean, to, 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 to bring it full circle into what I was sharing in the beginning about like putting the armor back on, you know, like um, I was totally kind of telling myself a story at the beginning of like, ah, this experience has changed me and I'm going to make meaning from it and I'm going to learn something from it. And, it's, and then that's going to be permanent and static and forever. And then I got so disappointed when suddenly I saw these old pieces of myself come back that I thought I had somehow eradicated. And it was like, oh, wait a second. Of course, those are still there because those were rooted in my lived experience. But that's not like me, right? Like the, like the pronouns that you're talking about. It's like, I don't, I don't have to identify with that stuff. I can just acknowledge that, oh, this body that I'm in, these lived experiences that I've had created these, these kind of sensitivities. And so I'm, you know, like, okay, that's there. And I can just relate to it so much more differently. Is this like common human experience rather that's than huge. my negative experience that I got to get rid of? Say, but that's huge, and that's that's the meditation practice. I mean, you're using words to describe it, and you may not be sitting in the full lotus posture while you're having that experience that you're recounting. But 
when you're recognizing the arising and passing away of individual thoughts or emotions and and not buying into the content of them or the emotional charge or entirely buying into or captured, if you will, by it. And sometimes you will be, but then you can even be aware of that. Then um, those are moments of insight and potential liberation. You use the term when you started talking. Um, I wrote it down. Uh, incinerated. Do you remember you were talking mm-hmm. about uh, what was incinerated? Like all of my oh like the i refer to them as hang-ups but like just like the the stuff that now feels trivial that i was like worried about or like that i want people to like me or i want people to validate me like all that stuff felt like it just disappeared like let me just uh because you use the word incinerated um the word um for um liberation in the Buddhist tradition is uh, is um, extinguishing. So that it's the same thing, incinerating, extinguishing. It's, it's like a flame that goes out. Okay, so the flame of ignorance or desire or, you know, sort of like attachment is burned up. It's extinguished, it's incinerated, incinerated. And that you could think was like once in a lifetime experience, you know, blow the top off the mountain. But it's also a moment by moment experience and seeing the arising of uh, the attachment or the view. And then it it basically evaporates or self-liberates or extinguishes or incinerates, you know. But that's, that's kind of a um, pointer or an indicator of something that's really important to not gloss over or just <clears throat> uh, intellectualize uh, in, an, in a narrative, uh, because that's a moment right in the midst of all the sorrow and grief. It's a moment of peace, wisdom, compassion, clarity, love. And it's a timeless moment, and it's never not here that but access to it requires remembering, which is one of the kind of root meanings of the word sati or mindfulness in Pali. But, but more than remembering, but just getting out of our own way so that it can be uh, recognized or um, realized as maybe a profound element of our actual nature, the true nature. And so that's that moment, that fleeting moment is a kind of, it's about a doorway. It's also a gift. And it also can easily become like just one more conversation point that evaporates in any kind of sense of meaning or validity because we've turned it into another story. But the fact that you use the word incinerated, I, I think it, 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 to me, it was like diagnostic of something important that I wanted to kind of at least highlight back to you that if that's true, I would put the welcome mat out more for that, you know, or study it more, investigate it more as 
you know, not necessarily meditation practice in any formal way, but life itself giving us one lesson after another. And yeah, the beauty inside the suffering. Yeah. Yeah, they really are so inseparable. And just the very fact that we can have this conversation and 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 you can hear this, I mean, because timing is everything. I mean, you can't have this kind of conversation in the midst of mm-hmm. you know the 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 fires. It's only when there's a moment of extinguishing, yeah, that any of this would be hearable, never mind make any sense. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm certainly glad I'm hearing it now. Yeah, I wish I could hear more. I know we got that. I was going to ask you maybe because I know we unfortunately do have to to wrap up. I, I feel so funny sort of doing some kind of formal wrap up as we're having such a deep and powerful conversation. But I guess I I am a psychologist by trade. So I'm going to ask you a psychologist question, Tim. I apologize. <laughs> um, which is like, how how do you feel right now? Having spent the last hour talking about this. I don't know what your expectations were coming into this conversation. I know, obviously, the first time we did this, we recorded an episode on this topic. It was incredibly powerful. I think we both felt pretty, pretty spent in a good way <laughs> after after talking. And I just wonder how you feel right now. Yeah, good opportunity to just reflect. How do I feel right now? Yeah, and there's a certain amount of that spentness. But honestly, the overwhelming feeling is like calm. Yeah. Which is is surprising. It's not what I would have expected. Um, But there's, but I do think there is something, this is part of what I think has been helpful to talk about it. There's something really calming, really settling about just naming reality, being real. Like, like you said before, Keith, there's something about like the artifice and so much of the stuff that just gets me agitated and like, but to just have the chance to just be curious and be open to like, yeah, and to not treat it as like grief is this like, oh, it's only a bad thing. It's only a negative emotion that must go away. This like, you know, the beauty and the suffering being intertwined, like John was just talking about it. Being able to experience it like that is very calming to me. Can I ask you if there is anything that you wanted to uh, say or turn towards in our conversation that that you didn't get to, or that it went in the direction that you eliminated other aspects of where you wanted it to go? You know, one of the things I had in my mind was like, oh, this will be really good. We can have like some really practical discussions about like, about non-doing. Um, I've been having this experience. My family and I went away for the week of Thanksgiving. Um, we did that very intentionally. We went down, we went to Mexico. We wanted to go somewhere. They didn't celebrate Thanksgiving. Um, cause we, and we felt that it would be kind of overwhelming, I guess, to be home this year without Anaya. Um, and I mean, anytime I kind of disrupt my routines like that, it's hard to get back in the swing of thing, whether it's exercise, or meditation, yoga. Um, and I've noticed since Anaya died that when a routine gets disrupted, it does, it just takes me longer. It's like movement through molasses to like get back into the swing of it. 
And I've observed over the last two weeks, like my anxiety increasing. Um, and I know, I know it's because I'm not working out. And it's like, do I force myself to work out? Or if I'm in a day where it's just, I'm feeling really spent, do I like give myself that day? So I was like, yeah, maybe we'll talk about like the how to of mindful grief. And I'm so glad we didn't talk about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, this felt, this felt good. So yeah, really, thank you, John, for being here, for being with me in this. And, you know, I, I, I kind of named this before, but I, absolutely, like I hold you as this kind of like idealized figure in a way. Um, and I think I was so like, so grateful and taken aback in some ways and appreciative of just your humanness, like in responding to me when I reached out and today, like, and I know you spoke to that before, but just like, that was very much my experience of it, of you. And like, I, I had mentioned so many people, I feel like just, just can't meet me there. And it just felt like your response was like, no, I'm happy to lean in with you. And I just, I really appreciate it. Well, uh, you know, I, I just have enormous uh, gratitude and, and, um, kind of sense of wonder in a certain way that like I don't think we've ever met in person right, yeah. <laughs> and here we're like talking at a level of intimacy that's virtually unimaginable uh, that is both extremely personal and also impersonal in the best of senses and and I think that it's because we love the same thing. I mean, you have a podcast on mindfulness, you know, <laughs> and and I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing or who I am without not the word, but what's underneath the word being, a, a, you know, a gigantically shaping force in my own life for a very long time. And so in that sense, there, you know, it really feels to me like there's no separation between us and all the projections about accomplishments and everything else. They're also just part of the fiction, so to speak, of like, you know, um, that we walk around with ideas about who each other are, depending on like CVs and, you know, narratives and work put out there in the world, but there's a whole other level of, uh, you know, privilege has gotten a very bad rep, you know, and for very real reasons that, you know, there's so much a kind of unacknowledged privilege of all kinds that we, uh, <clears throat> but there's a certain privilege of just being human and being able to meet in this kind of way that um, I am just unbelievably humbled by. And so in that sense, I feel like, you know, I don't know either of you, but here we are meeting in this, you know, space that is in some sense going to be shared with other people, having a conversation that is impossible to have. And in a way that feels like uh, honest to me, you know, just authentic and not fabricated or you know for consumption yeah. but just an attempt to understand what's 
basically impossible to understand with, you know, the, the sort of cognitive apparatus that we have unless we recruit other forms of human intelligence, which happily, I believe, I know from direct experience, we have, if only we can, you know, tap into them. They're always here, but whether we can access them is, that's where the formal meditation practice comes in until it becomes life is the meditation practice. And it's all formal practice, you could say. Yeah. Including conversations like this. Yeah, I mean, I was, I was going to say, I know, obviously, this is a heavy topic and, and a lot of feelings. I, you know, I guess just to speak for one moment about kind of what I'm feeling coming out of this, I, I just hearing you say some of the things that you just said, John, and, and bearing witness to this conversation, it, it gives me faith in humanity, honestly. Um, I think there is so much suffering and so much that takes that faith away on a day-by-day basis. And I think, you know, everything you just said, John, I, I wholeheartedly agree with. And coming out of this, I just feel grateful. I, I feel so much appreciation that, John, you're who you are and that you've been so good to us over the years. And Tim, I just feel so grateful. I know I'm the periphery going through this with you, but that that you're my partner and that we work together every day and that we can, we can talk like this. It feels truly like a privilege. It's a great word for it, John. Um, Cause I think very few people can. Um, and that's a special thing. Yeah. Thank you. Maybe more will uh, by listening in on, on this because uh, I think we're all capable of this. I mean, I know we're all capable of this. Mm -hmm. It just requires the right kind of circumstances or uh, to to wake up to this dimension, uh, this dimension of our being. And I'm guessing that that's why you do what you do. And I know it's why I do what I do. Uh, uh, so it, it, it really, in some sense, your willingness Tim, to sort of live inside the actuality of your experience uh, is a huge gift to other people because we all experience that kind of vulnerability. And when we turn towards it rather than turn away from it, it's uh, it is healing and 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 transformative. And also humbling, hugely, hugely humbling. Yeah. So I want to just thank both of you for the invitation. You know, um, uh, you guys are beautiful together. I, I really, you. you know, uh, what you're doing is is really, I think, a profound contribution and. You know, and the door of the sports world, so to speak, uh, sports performance, however you want to frame that. Why do people love sports so much? Why, you know, thousands of people go to a stadium every weekend to watch this, that or the other or fly over to Qatar or, you know, uh, to watch people kick a ball. Mm -hmm. uh, 
You know, those are important questions to ask because there's something about it that's characteristic of our humanity. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of love in it and a lot of beauty. And so that you have a podcast that actually inquires into the nature of optimizing performance, but at the same time, deep exploration of what the hell that even means in <laughs> performing. Nice. Um, this is kind of like a really important contribution to the world because mm -hmm. so many people are going to enter, find themselves through the sports door, so to speak. I hope rather than just distract themselves through the sports door. And so your podcast is really um, a wonderful thing. Well, that means a lot. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, we, I decidedly, this, of course, is not a sports episode, but I think there are so many things that we said that in a very different context, you know, it can be like in a microcosm for life, the kinds of emotions, and the kinds of experiences that people experience in the world of sports. Um, and you thing. see it all the time, you know, if you yeah. watch baseball or football or anything else. I mean, every single one of those people on the field, including the coaches and everybody else, they have lives. Mm -hmm. They were born. They're all going to die. Everybody has a body. The bodies always break down. The age, they, you know, they break down more on the football field, of course. <laughs> but, but, and everybody, you know, has to deal with whatever they have to deal with and attachment to outcome. This is like, it's not an accident that so many people love sport. And, and the fact that you can point out how rich it is in terms of possibility for, um, realization of the full dimensionality of our humanity on every level from the individual to the global. It's really a unique voice in the world. So deep bows to both of you for it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, as we wind down here, I won't, I won't cheapen this by, by doing a marketing wrap up like we usually do. And I guess folks who listen to our podcast, you know how to find us. And if not, you can listen to another episode and hear ways to find us. And um, there are lots of ways to, to read and learn about John's work. So I'll, I'll invite you to search that out as well. Um, and again, profound thank you to, to John and to Tim for, for doing this. And just hope it does some good, really do. And I, I said this at the end of the last episode, too, but I, you know, I'm, yeah, I'm Googleable. If anyone wants to connect, if anyone, if this has touched anyone in some way and they want to talk more with me, please reach out. All right. Well, thank you again to everybody and thank you for everyone who listened. And we'll see you next time. Thank you, everybody.